Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My guest this week is a broadcaster and best-selling author who's just finished presenting coverage of the Olympics and Paralympics. She's here to talk about her first children's book, The Racehorse Who Wouldn't Gallop. Of course, she's Claire Balding. Claire, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. The Racehorse Who Wouldn't Gallop tells a story of Charlie Bass, a 10-year-old who is mad about horses. So when she accidentally manages to buy a racehorse, Charlie is thrilled. The only problem, her racehorse won't gallop. He won't even leave the stable without his best friend, Percy the Pony. Now, Claire, is this an idea that you've had for some time? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to write fiction. I wanted to write a story that was fun and believable and had a strong heroine in it, which Charlie is. So the idea, actually, of the racehorse who wouldn't gallop is based on truth. My father trained a very fast sprinter called Loxong in the early 90s, and she got to a state in her later years where she wouldn't go onto the gallop. She just wouldn't leave the yard without my dad coming with her on his... He had a, a sort of big, fat, hairy hunter who, who he rode as a hack, and she wouldn't go anywhere without this horse who was called Quirk. And he couldn't keep up with her on the gallop, so he'd just take her to the, to the start of the gallop. She'd go up it at a million miles an hour, and then she'd stop fast at the top and turn around and wait for him. So... <laughs> So there is an element of truth to it, and I've also known racehorses that wouldn't go, they wouldn't travel without a sheep or a goat or a pony. You know, they had a, yeah. they needed a companion. There was one, actually, who was very in love with a cat. You know, they're not all the same, and they're not all herd animals. They can be quite independent and mm-hmm. individual. So that idea was there. And then the creation of Charlie and her two older brothers is sort of based on my... I've got two nephews and a younger niece, and they tease her horribly, and they tell her she's got thunder thighs. And is that's Flora? Yeah. And that's a very strong element in the book, you know, that poor Charlie is, you know, she's got legs like I've got legs, which are slightly wider at the top (laughs) than I would wish them to be. But it's all about the strength of powerful legs. And I don't think there are enough large-thighed heroines in literature, so I've created one. (laughs) Excellent. Let's meet Charlie in an extract from the audiobook of The Racehorse Who Wouldn't Gallop, read by your good self. Here she is at the start of the book, dreaming about owning her own horse. Sitting up in bed... Charlie stared out of the window, trying to remember the details of her dream. She'd been riding again, so fast it had made her eyes stream. In the clouds, she imagined she could see the shapes of horses, a whole herd of wild grey ponies from the Camargue, galloping on a beach in France. The walls of Charlie's bedroom were papered with posters of horses. The Olympic gold medal-winning dressage horse, Vallegro, dancing on the spot. The show jumper, Hello Sanctos, clearing an impossibly high wall. And a big grey event horse stretching over the Vicarage V at Badminton. Above her rickety chest of drawers, which had a couple of knobs missing and one stuck on with chewing gum, was a picture of a Palomino pony from a calendar she'd been given for Christmas two years earlier. Charlie didn't know its name or where it came from, but she looked at it every day and imagined owning a pony like that. A pony she could call her own. A pony she could build a partnership and a relationship with. A pony only she would understand, and who, given time, would understand her too. Charlie knew that she could be a top-class rider if she was given the chance. But so far, she had only ever ridden a cow. Her dad told her it was the same thing, but she knew that it wasn't. Charlie couldn't imagine a life that wasn't surrounded by cows and chickens and pigs and large muddy fields. Her family lived on a farm at the end of a long and bumpy drive in the middle of nowhere. 
They were five miles from the nearest village, 20 miles from the nearest town, and it was so dark at night that the stars were bright and clear. That was an extract from Claire Balding's new book, The Racehorse Who Wouldn't Gallop. Uh, Claire, you've brought along five objects to the Penguin Studio that have influenced your book in some way. Your first object is a photograph of you and your family surrounded by your animals and your pony. Do you remember this being taken? I remember many scenes like it because my mother was always very keen on a photo for the Christmas card. And the best time to do those photos was really in the summer, so there would be a lot of planning going into it. And, of course, Andrew, my brother, and I would only stay still if we were with the ponies and the dogs. And here you are sitting on the pony. What was the pony's name? That's Valkyrie. Valkyrie. So she was our first Shetland pony. And then we've got Candy and Flossie there, haven't we? And is there a lurcher in the corner as well? Yes, there is. Yeah, that's Cindy. That was So my brother's dog is Cindy. Um, Flossie was mine. Candy's my mum's dog. And if Bertie's around, he's a very handsome, sort of blonde-haired lurcher. And he was dad's dog. And he was very much, you know, the stud of the, of the local area. Claire, you grew up on a racing yard surrounded by horses and dogs. Now, you said you've actually thought you were a dog when you were younger. When did you discover that you weren't? I was very disappointed when I realised I wasn't a dog because the dogs got a lot of love and attention and, you know, they got fed really nice-looking food, I know, because I tried it. And they slept in really comfortable beds, and I know that too, because obviously I curled up with them. Yes, I did. I really wanted to be the boxer. And it wasn't the best choice, because I'm not sure Flossie was the brightest dog in the world. But she seemed to me to have a very good life. And she could sleep a lot and eat a lot and fart a lot. And that basically, I thought, was perfect. Um, But, yeah, we were very wild children. We spent a lot of time in the garden in sort of fantasy world, building camps and hiding. And there were places to hide where you really could disappear for hours. So you were feral? Yeah, a little bit. And do you miss all this living in the suburbs of London now? I do and I don't. I mean, I get home a fair bit and I'm riding again now and I hadn't ridden for sort of 20 years, but my sister-in-law and I are sharing a horse and it means I can ride with my nephews and my niece. And that's great fun. So I'm jumping again and I'm, you know, feeling like a kid again. So I can go home and do that. But, you know, real life takes over and you've got a mortgage to pay and you've got work to do. And I love my work and I found, I'm very lucky, I found something that gives me the adrenaline rush and the sense of fun and being part of a big team. Did you dream of doing this job when you were little? I didn't know a job like this existed. I didn't know that it was, and it certainly when I was little was not a thing that a woman would do. Mm -hmm. So no, in my head it didn't exist as a dream. How can you have a dream if you don't see anybody like you doing it? I had wonderful fantasies of writing books that would change the world. You know, I wanted to write and I wanted to be an event writer as well. So in my head, I was competing at the Olympics while writing best-selling works of fiction that really meant something. They weren't just sort of sex romp things. And poetry, I was going to write poetry like Emily Dickinson and novels like Henry James and just be... And nobody would know because I'd do it under a pseudonym and then they'd discover it was me. So that gold medal winning event rider can also write. Like Sparky's Magic Piano. What do you think you learnt from spending so much of your childhood outdoors with animals? I think when you're around animals a lot, they teach you manners quite quickly. That pony Valkyrie, she definitely taught me manners. I mean, she squashed me against a a stable wall when I was being particularly, you know, having a little tantrum. She decided she'd had enough of that, so just wouldn't (laughs) let me move. Um... And I think they teach you patience and the value of kindness because they won't do anything for you if you're not kind. Mm -hmm. And you need to be quite consistent and disciplined as well. You know, you can't just let them get away with everything. So you've got... Yeah, there are boundaries and that is 
a quite a useful, you know, lesson for then dealing with with athletes <laughs> in later life. And broadcasters. Yeah, no, this is when the interview is going to happen and this is what I, we are going to do, all right? Are you ready? Don't mess yeah, with Claire. Yeah, yeah. Let's head back to Folly Farm and meet the rest of Charlie's family and some rather peculiarly named cows with another extract from The Racehorse Who Wouldn't Gallop. Charlie had been christened Charlotte Elizabeth Bass, but her father thought that sounded a bit formal so had called her Charlie from day one. Along with her older brothers, Harry and Larry, Charlie worked on the farm before and after she went to school. Charlie's mother, Caroline, was a copy editor for a major publishing firm. It meant that she read the first drafts of non-fiction books, checking them for spelling, grammar and factual errors. She read at least a book a day, sometimes two, and was a mine of information on subjects from beekeeping to Buddhism, trees to trampolines, ancient mythology to modern art. She had fallen in love with Charlie's dad, Bill Bass, at the Three Counties show, where he was showing a cow. It didn't win the main prize. In fact, it came last. But when Charlie's mum went to commiserate with him afterwards, she was bowled over by his charm. I realised it was your dad who should have won first prize. He was gorgeous, Charlie's mum had told her once. Charlie's dad worked every hour that the sun was up and some hours when it wasn't. He milked the cows at 5am and again at 5pm every day of the year. They had to be milked in a particular order because cows are very keen on routine and all have individual personalities and quirks. Bill liked to talk to them as he attached them to the milking machine addressing them by their names. He had chosen simple, easy-to-remember names, while his wife had called several after characters from books. Charlie and her brothers had thrown in a few celebrities for good measure, which meant that the herd was quite a mix. So Princess Anne was milked first every morning, followed by Windy Bottom, Creamy and Hermione Granger. Madonna waited patiently for her turn towards the end, while Jane Eyre and Mole Flanders always produced huge quantities of milk. <laughs> that is an extract from The Racehorse Who Wouldn't Gallop, written and read by my guest, Claire Balding. Sorry, I know I shouldn't be laughing, but it's a compliment to your writing. <laughs> Claire, horse racing is something that runs in your family, and your next object reflects that. These are your family jockey silks. Could you please describe them? Yeah, these are actually my racing silks. So these belonged to originally my great-grandfather. So they're very ancient. You have to register your colours yeah. at Weatherby's. And each owner has individual colours. So, for example, Sheikh Mohammed's colours for Godolphin are, are beautiful royal blue. The Queen's colours you'll have seen are red and purple with gold braid and a black cap with a gold tassel. And these colours, which are mine, are dark racing green with gold collar, gold cuffs and this gold braid on them. So they've got... They're very, very simple, and the cap is gold as well, a sort of an old gold, an ancient gold. Mm -hmm. And they are the colours that the racehorse in, the racehorse who wouldn't gallop, that he carries when he goes to the racecourse. Because I thought, well, what's the point in coming up with colours unless I know that I can hold up the silks and say, and this is what Joe wears when he rides it? And actually, Charlie dreams of the colours because she's looking at the sun through the trees and she's thinking of green and gold and thinks then that's a very good combination and that green and gold, there's a nobility to it for noble warriors. We know we have to have good noble colours. So as soon as I thought, well, they'll be my colours, then I could see in the scene where 
you know, I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but essentially um, they get to this big, big race. And to know that the colours would glint, the gold of the cap, you'd really see it mm-hmm. from a long way off. And I know you can because I've seen these colours in action. I mean, not for a while because I haven't had a racehorse in training for a long time, but... I know what a jockey looks like wearing them. And that's the other thing. If you're true, you know, if there are elements of real factual truth in it, Mm -hmm. people don't doubt you, you know, and I know I can write it accurately. So, yeah. So this book, like your memoir, is entirely autobiographical Uh, and entirely accurate and true. No, it's not accurate and true. And I had to get a lot of advice on cows, actually, because the extract you just played, they do like a routine. I don't know whether they would always put themselves in an order, but also I then wanted, there's a line in the book where I get to say, Madonna's got mastitis. And that really made me laugh. I thought, it doesn't matter, the kids don't get it. That makes me laugh. The racehorse that wouldn't gallop is based around the Derby at Epsom and includes lots of details about training horses. Your background in racing must have helped out here. Oh, absolutely. And actually, uh, when was it? Last year, actually. Last year, I went to the Derby and didn't present it. So for the first time in about 20 years, I didn't work on the Derby. And I deliberately didn't because I wanted to be down at the start. And I used to go down to the start as a teenager and we would watch the race from the start and then turn around to watch the finish on one of the big screens. And actually, I I wanted to go down there because I wanted to know if my memory was correct that it is very, very quiet down there. There's no tannoy. In fact, there's no big screen either. So I'd misremembered things from my youth. There is quite a crowd there, but essentially you don't get the feeling that it's a big race day at all, not when you're down at the start and you're a mile and a half away, obviously, from the finish, unless you go across the middle and, and whether... I needed to work out as well, it's very crucial to the plot, can you get from the start to the finish of the derby if you went as the crow flies, could you get there quicker than the field? That's really crucial. So I wanted to see it all and I wanted to hear the noises and I wanted to check that things were going to be correct in that build-up and I took my two nephews with me and we went on the rides in the middle of the course and we went to Tattenham Corner so I knew that people put their blankets down from early in the morning because they do (laughs) and the double-decker buses, obviously the open-top buses are always there but you kind of have to walk it and know it and feel it to to be able to to write it. it. Yeah, yeah. Utterly authentic. Now, you've said that you could ride before you could walk and dreamt of winning the Grand National yourself. When did you decide that life as a jockey wasn't for you? Well, unfortunately, I could ride before I could walk and I broke my collarbone actually at two and a half, um, falling off that pony from the original photo, falling off Valkyrie. And my dad had always said that you had to fall off a hundred times and break your collarbone to be a proper jockey. So I was thrilled because I'd broken my collarbone really early. So I was well ahead on that. And then my brother and I started falling off on purpose because we needed to get to 100 and I'd said to him look we just do 10 every day we'll fall off every day we'll do this in no time and then he said dad said it didn't count if it was on purpose which I thought was really harsh actually because we'd done a lot we got to about 80 by that stage and then we had to start again but I the dreams of being a jockey I was an amateur jockey and I rode a lot of winners on the flat and I won my weight in champagne which was an excellent result because I was considerably heavier than everybody else but that also while it's good for winning your weight in champagne is not really good for a long-term career as a jockey. Mm-hmm. I was too heavy. I mean, I was never going to be able to do it, I'm, you know, unless I... I, did, <laughs> I did go to quite a lot of extremes of obviously sweating off weight, but also thinking I could cut my hair and that would make a difference. Cutting toenails, you know, considering liposuction and would that make a difference? Laxatives, Ella? Yes, I did, yes. Yeah. I took these horrible chocolate granules. Oh, yeah. They did not taste nice. Yeah, I mean, you go to considerable lengths when you're trying to lose a lot of weight very quickly. So it's worked out for the best that you didn't succeed in that department. I now can eat properly and exercise 
Healthily. Yes. Let's dip back into the racehorse that wouldn't gallop with another extract from the audiobook. Charlie is about to receive some bad news from her parents. On the table were several pieces of paper with red writing on them and a complicated-looking spreadsheet. Her father smiled at her, but she could see the lines of worry on his face as he piled up the papers and put them in a box. Hello, Poppet. How was school? he said. Fine, she replied. Boris was at her heels and jumped up onto her lap as she sat down. The legs on the chair were a bit wobbly, so she had to be careful not to move suddenly, otherwise he would fall off. Maths is difficult, but Mrs Maxwell says I'm getting a bit better and English is OK. We're doing a play by Shakespeare where Richard III says he'd give up his kingdom for a horse. I know what he means. Your brains must come from your mother, said Mr Bass, as he patted his daughter on the head. Thank the Lord for that. He poured her a cup of tea, looked at his wife and then back at his daughter. Now, Charlie, he said, your mother and I wanted to talk to you about something. He cleared his throat. I'm afraid there might have to be some changes at the farm. It's getting harder and harder to make the numbers add up and what with milk being so cheap, I don't know how much longer we can afford to keep the cows. Charlie's mouth dropped open. Her father loved those cows and she knew he'd be miserable without Jane Eyre and Madonna and even grumpy old Princess Anne. Mr Bass tried to smile as he carried on talking. The boys will be back soon and we thought we might have a family meeting just to let you all know what's happening. Charlie nodded but her mind was racing. It sounded to her as if her parents needed a financial solution and fast. She liked to think of money-making ideas. This would be fun. Her father was trying so hard to sound positive, but she knew he was counting on her, even if he didn't know it himself. She resolved to corner her brothers the moment they got home, warn them about the family meeting and see if they had any clever ideas up their sleeves. She didn't know what nonsense they might come up with, but it was worth a shot. And I'll put my thinking cap on, said Charlie to herself. She really did have a thinking cap. It was an old felt cap that used to be in her dressing-up box. Whenever Charlie put it on, she found she could focus better, as if her brain was linked into an energy force. She finished her tea and headed upstairs to try it out. Naughty, grumpy princess. <laughs> an extract from The Racehorse Who Wouldn't Gallop, written and read by Claire Balding. Claire... Your heroine Charlie is determined to make things right and save the farm. Were you as headstrong and determined as she was when you were a child? Yes, I, I want. I, I have this thing where I think I can solve everybody's life crises. And I tend to, even now, offer a lot of career advice. And sometimes people might have asked for it, um, but generally speaking, they haven't. And I see very clearly the people they should be marrying and make it very clear to both parties, who then look at me really strangely. So if there's anything, Richard, in your life that you would like advice on, I am your woman. <laughs> Thank you. But yes, I think I was constantly saying to my father what he should be doing with racehorses, for example, and which horses should be running in which races, not knowing that, for example, a gelding can't run in the derby. So I was suggesting... <laughs> something that couldn't happen. And at school, I think, yes, telling people exactly what they should be doing. So I was quite bossy and definitely headstrong. Bossy Boots Balding. Yes, okay. indeed. Now, your next object is something that represents what surely must be one of the highlights of your broadcasting career. This is an Olympic torch from the 2012 Games. And I cannot believe that I'm just clanked it on the chair. It is an amazing object. 
And it, you've kept it. It's very beautiful, isn't it? Well, this is from the torch relay. So, so anybody who carried a torch as part of that torch relay, and there were thousands of people who did, they could buy their torch at the end of their section. And you can't ever relight it. So they've cut the um, cords, essentially, that would Inside. allow you to you yeah, know, so it put, doesn't put smell the at gas. All of any... No, it doesn't. But it's got this amazing sort of lattice work. So there are all these different holes in it. And then the logo from 2012. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at it and I just think, gosh, that torch... The, the idea of linking everybody around the country through the torch relay, which I think built up to it beautifully. And I carried the torch through Newbury High Street and my parents came to watch and my nephews came and I think my niece came too and she'd have been pretty young then. And my sister-in-law and Alice, my partner. Um, and I remember Uncle Toby came as well, who, who's sadly no longer with us. And he was he was very visually impaired by then. But I saw him when I got off the um, when I got off the little bus to do my section. I ran over and gave him a hug, and I said, "I can't believe you've come." And he said, "I just wanted to hear this." Aww. And the the um, the reception was amazing. There were people hanging out of windows, shop windows. I remember looking up, and there was somebody wearing masks, William and Harry masks, you know, waving <laughs> yeah. from the top windows of Boots. And it was such a familiar. You know, that's the town closest to where I grew up. So there were a lot of people who had known me for a long time. And certainly known of me, but I still stay in touch with the girl that I who handed the torch to me. We email each other, and she always emails me on the anniversary day because she remembers it and and makes sure she. And she said to me this year, she can't believe it's four years since we, you know, shared that relay in Newbury. And she's much younger. I mean, she's about she's in her twenties. She's off to university now. And where do you um, keep the torch? I keep it at home. But where? Well, next to the fireplace. <laughs> next to the fireplace. Yeah. Does, does that make sense stand? to me? No, it doesn't. It just leans up against the wall. I probably, does, should, does I probably should get a stand for it. Actually, that's a very good point. So is it like an Oscar that everybody comes to your house always wants to pick Once, it up? And yeah, touch pick it. up the torch. Can we have a photo with the torch? Yes. I probably should keep it in the loo actually, because yes. then they could, and then I wouldn't need to know. <laughs> but I, yes. As I said earlier, you recently returned from presenting coverage on the Olympics and the Paralympics in Rio. What were the standout moments of the Games for you this year? I loved both, but my favourite day of the Olympics was the day that Nick Skelton won the gold medal in the show jumping. And Nick Skelton's been trying to win an individual medal at the Mm. Olympics for as long as I've been alive. (laughs) He really has. He's been at every Olympics I can remember. And he's an amazing guy, and I've known him a long, long time. And I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled for him. And then that same day, that evening the women's hockey team won the gold medal in a penalty shootout against the Netherlands and nine million people watched them. And I know Kate Richardson-Walsh quite well, who's the captain, but I'd also done in the build-up to the Games, I'd gone and done an interview with Maddie Hinch, who's the goalkeeper, Georgie Twig, who's one of the outfield players, and Kate, who's the captain. And we had talked about Maddie saving penalties against the Dutch because they played them in this big final not long ago and she'd gone through her routine and told me all about it. So when it went to a penalty shootout, I knew that she would save more penalties than the other goalkeeper and she did. She was amazing. But also during the match, she saved certain goals. I mean, she she was just extraordinary. And she sort of emerged as the as the heroine amongst a team of heroines. But I loved that women's hockey was suddenly the number one thing that everybody was talking about and that so many people watched that final and that they were victorious in the end. You know, we're so used to, particularly yeah. with football, yeah. we're so used to watching England in particular lose penalty shootouts that to have a moment where a British team, you know, a combined, obviously, Great Britain team could win a penalty shootout 
against the number one side in the world. That was just wonderful, phenomenal. But I also I loved the fact that diving was on in prime time, that trampolining was on in prime time, gymnastics, you know, Max Whitlock winning his two gold medals. And then I went back for the Paralympics. And again, so many moments that that stand out, so many fantastic British performances, uh, you know, whether it's Hannah Cockcroft or Kadena Cox, I was mm. really impressed with, who won gold medals in both athletics and cycling. Extraordinary. Sarah Story, Dame Sarah Story, you know, smashing through the record number of gold medals for a female British Paralympian. But one moment I particularly liked from the Paralympics, there was a 15-year-old girl called Ellie Robinson who was swimming, and she had taken up swimming because of watching Ellie Simmons in London. And she was now racing against Ellie Simmons. And actually, one of the finals she made, Ellie didn't make the final, but but Ellie, the new Ellie, Ellie Robinson did. And she mm-hmm. came out for her final and she went to put her arms up in the air. Uh-huh. But her swimming suit was so tight. And then she had this big dry robe thing on. And then she had a, a little rucksack on her back that when she went to put her arms in the air, she couldn't get her arms up to the air. So she just put them out sideways, put her head down and thought, <laughs> OK, style it out, style it out. And so they, everybody called it a gangster entrance. And she became the gangster girl of the Paralympics. And then she's going, she's going back to school. My goddaughter's at the same school as, as her and she's going back to school on Monday to carry on studying for a GCSEs. And I just love that. Fantastic. You know, she's coming back from winning a Paralympic gold medal to go back to school. <laughs> How has sports journalism changed over the course of your career? Has it become less male-dominated? Yeah, there are way more women doing it now. And a lot of younger women coming through who are writing brilliantly, who can broadcast sensationally well. And Actually, now the big the big move, I think, since London, and I've been campaigning very much for this, is to have more female voices commentating because it's if very rare. You're a sports rare. suffragette. <laughs> yeah, OK, I'll take that. That's fine. Yes, and I, I hope just, you know, as I said, growing up, I didn't see many, I didn't see any women in my very yeah. early years doing what I now do. And then Helen Rollison would have been the first woman to present Grandstand. Sue Barker was working on Sky when Sky first started and mm-hmm. came to the BBC. And then Hazel Irvin, who's a great friend of mine, uh, myself, Gabby Logan, Jill Douglas, Lee McKenzie. You know, we were all working on in very high-profile roles at the Olympics, and people don't really bat an eyelid now when yeah. they see women in the main presenting roles. They were batting plenty of eyelids 10 years ago, 12 years ago, so it's amazing how quickly it can change. And I do think... The female voice tends to mature later. So women in their 40s have much more of a base range than they do in their 20s and 30s. Now, for commentary, you need that base range. And I would love to see women being given that chance. And you've got to, therefore, be able to give to give them the chance to make mistakes and still feel that they're supported. Because, frankly, everything we do, and particularly with live commentary and live presentation, you're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. You're going to say things you didn't mean to say. Mm-hmm. And you just need somebody backing you that's going to say, look, you made this mistake, try not to make it again, but don't worry, we, we'll give you another chance. Because a lot of it is confidence. It's all about confidence. So in another 20 years, you will probably sound like Frank Zappa. Yes, I will. Better yes, profundo. OK, time to hear again from the racehorse who wouldn't gallop. In this extract, Charlie struggles to get through a day at school when she would much rather be at home on the farm. When the bell rang, Charlie headed out into the playground. She normally kept to herself at break time. Apart from Polly, the other girls were scary. They all had long hair, which they played with incessantly, wrapping it round their fingers, putting it up and pulling it down, tying it sideways, backwards and on top of their heads. They all talked about music and boys and clothes and things that Charlie didn't really understand. And they teased her. A lot. Here she comes, the girl who looks like a cow, 
shouted Vanessa Vesey. The group around her started laughing. She smells like one too, said Serena Tucker. The rest of the girls fell about laughing. And look at her hair, added Vanessa spitefully. What do you call that style? Charlie ran her hands through her short blonde hair and tried to make it look less like her mother had put a bowl on her head and cut round it, which was exactly what she had done at the weekend. Charlie feels like an outsider at school and struggles to fit in. What was your school life like? Very similar to that. It was. <laughs> yeah. I remember the first weekend when I went to boarding school and I was 10 when I went there and I was the youngest in, in my year and actually therefore the youngest in the whole school. And I remember somebody saying really early on that I smelled of horses. And I, really? I, I probably did. But um, it, it's quite harsh, that, when you're... And also that thing of all the girls having long hair, have you noticed that? Mm. Every girl now... From the age of five upwards, mm -hmm. they all have long hair. What? Why? I mean, I, I don't get it, really, because short hair is so much easier to deal with. Yeah. And particularly if you're playing sports and things, short hair is just a, a lot more practical. So it, that idea of, of you're different because something simple, like you've got short hair. And, and everyone smell else of got, horses. And you smell of horses. Yeah. And in Charlie's case, smells of cows. So, yeah, that, that would have been very, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. But I slightly think that everybody feels like an outsider at school. I think we kid mm -hmm. ourselves that there is a group that are all really secure. I'm not sure they are. Mm -hmm. um, I think we all struggle because we want to be part of the tribe because that's where it feels safe. Mm -hmm. But actually, the realisation that being an individual is a sign of strength eventually comes to you and it'll come to you at a different age and I look at Flora who's five my niece and she's very independent already she has really clear views on things I think gosh I wasn't like that I don't know why I don't know whether we don't teach it in school or whether our our culture our very Britishness is all about fitting in and actually that we feel a certain safety in wearing a uniform and behaving in a certain way and not being emotional. Well, you know, all the things that we classically think of as yeah. British. Is that about fitting in? I think it is. I think you're absolutely right. Claire, your next object is a photo of your dog. What's your dog's name? Yeah, this is Archie. You need to look at this, Archie. Richard, because okay. he's so handsome, isn't he? So he's a black and white Tibetan terrier. And Tibetan terriers, the Dalai Lama has a Tibetan terrier. They were originally temple dogs in, in, in Tibet and the larger ones, they would, you know, when they're born in a litter, you do get slightly differing sizes. So mm -hmm. the bigger ones would be used as herding dogs and the smaller ones would be temple dogs and they would sit on the shelves of the, of the temple and look out. And they're meant to have this sort of very discerning character that they, they're, he's quite aloof actually, but they're meant to be great judges of character. He's not, as it happens, <laughs> and he's also a little thief. Um, so he will eat anything and that he things that he shouldn't. He's got a bit of a little man complex that he, when a bigger dog comes towards him, much bigger dog, he will get very aggressive, <laughs> which is foolish of him. But he's clearly a huge part of my life and I do love walking him and he's part of my routine. When I'm writing, I'll wake up, take him for a walk, very much start thinking about what I'm writing that day, come back, write, then, you know, have a cup of coffee, then write a bit more, then take him for another walk, then write a bit more. So he's he fits into my writing day quite perfectly. And if I'm struggling with an idea, I might try and tell him about it. So there is a dog in the book, Boris, who's a border terrier, who Charlie tries to take to school with her. 
I mean, I would try and take Archie to work. He, um, he wouldn't necessarily want to come to work. Would he be unfriendly if he came in here now? Maybe. Archie, he's, he's, um, yeah, he probably wouldn't. Well, you're a man. He quite likes men. He, he's very keen because he doesn't, obviously, there are no men in his daily life. Right. Uh, he gets quite excited at the idea of, uh, oh, wow, it's a man. Male company. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pathetic, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's a male role. I don't know. What are we doing with him? He's he might he might want to say hello to you, but then he would turn his nose up and he wouldn't bother. He doesn't want to fuss. He doesn't want you to touch him. Okay. Yeah. What did John O and Toby, your nephews, and Flora, your niece, think of your book when they first read it? They were very excited that it's dedicated to them. Mm-hmm. Flora is. She actually said to somebody at the launch party. She said. Um, I'm Flora and I've got thunder thighs and lifted her dress up to show her legs. Like, you know, great. She, she, I, I, I don't know whether she's got the point that the message is this is a good thing, this yes. is fine, this is a good thing. Jono and Toby identified very strongly with Harry and Larry and then said that I'd made them awful and they ought to have some redeeming features. So I, I, they do, actually. But they want more of Harry and Larry. So every time they're mentioned, they, they perk up because they think that's them. How important is it for you that children, even very small children, have positive role models, particularly when it comes to body image and thunder thigh issues? Yeah, I do think for girls and for boys, I think we, we are very judgmental and we, unfortunately, we're very visual in our judgment. And to me, finding a way of getting a message out there without being didactic or, you know, dull about it, I, 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 would, I want to get the message out there that your body and your body shape is really only important for what your body can do for you, not mm. for how you look, not for whether you can wear skinny jeans or not. But could you run if you had to? Could you walk for an hour if you had to? Could yeah. you rescue somebody from a riptide? You know, are you yeah. strong enough and fit enough and healthy enough? And do you realise how much that would help you in your schoolwork as well and concentrate it? Um, because the fitter you are, the longer you can concentrate for. And so I would love children to feel that they can use your body athletically. Don't be afraid of getting sweaty and dirty and smelling a bit it doesn't matter fit and strong is a good way to be and going back to the olympics and the paralympics you look at the women who won medals and you look at the different shapes and sizes of those women and you know there is everything there from amy tinkler the 13 year old gymnast who's tiny and neat and nimble to Catherine granger or vicky thornley who's six foot four and you know really strong and powerful for rowing would you like to be sports minister (laughs) Uh, no, because that like would mean be. that would mean having being a politician. But I don't worry. I talk a lot. I'd add an hour onto the school day, mm-hmm. and it would be specifically for sport. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to do the sport at the end of the day. But a, you, it would be much better for all the kids, and b, it would be much better for their mothers, who generally are the ones who've got to be at home or pick them up from school, yeah. and therefore can't work. And better than homework. Well, yes, it would be better than homework too. Here's a final clip from the audiobook of the racehorse who wouldn't gallop. Well, said Charlie, taking a deep breath. It might sound just as crazy, but I think we should buy a racehorse. She stopped and looked at her parents. They both seemed surprised, but her mother smiled encouragingly. They can win prize money, and if they win a really big race like the Derby, they could be worth millions. Charlie was excited now and started to talk faster and faster. We've got space on the farm, and Polly's dad trains racehorses, and sometimes you can find a horse who doesn't like being at a big yard, like the one Joe's dad worked in, and they'd rather have individual attention, and I was thinking that we could give them that, as long as they don't mind the cows. Hmm, said her father when Charlie paused for breath. That's an interesting idea, but where could we get one? Charlie had done her research. 
There's a horses and training sale tomorrow in Buffington. Polly's going with her dad. She says it's where they sell racehorses that trainers don't think are getting along as well as they should. I thought we could go, just to have a look. Mr Bass put up his hand and said, We don't have any money to spend, and even if we did and the horse turned out to be any good, we'd have to sell it to make the profit we need. I'm sorry, love. He shook his head. Harry and Larry started sniggering. A racehorse? said Harry. Where does she get these daft ideas? I know, whispered Harry, and to think they reckon she's the clever one. They both snorted with laughter as Charlie bit her lip and stared down at the notes she'd made. She'd worked out a timetable for training and drawn up a chart including mucking out, grooming and feeding. I know how much you want a horse, darling, said Mrs Bass, but we can't afford it. We can barely keep the animals we've got, let alone take on more. Charlie pushed back her chair and ran from the room, desperate to hide the tears that were falling down her face. Boris dashed upstairs behind her, and she held him tight until she finally stopped crying. I know this would work, she said into his ear. If they give me the chance, I promise I'd save the farm. Claire, this brings us to your fifth and final object, a copy of Anna Sewell's Black Beauty, your favourite book as a child and it's got horses all over the cover and top hats and is exactly the right size for a child to hold and it smells wonderful. <laughs> Do you remember when you got this book? I would have been about 10 and it was given to me by my grandmother actually in a very old copy and, and there are illustrations by Cecil Alden and the pages are quite thick and the feeling of holding something that clearly had been read by many people... Yeah but also was, was a first edition and was old and lovely. And I love that book. And Anna Saul only wrote one book in her life. And she wrote it very late in life, and she wrote it to raise funds for the RSPCA. And it is a book about animal cruelty, but it is also a book about animal kindness and, and how much more you can get from a horse if you are kind to it. And I think she was the the forerunner to Michael Morpurgo mm -hmm. um, and to, to many others who have tried to write about animals in a way that doesn't just anthropomorphise them, but also makes us as human beings far more conscious of the way we interact with animals, but also what animals can bring to our lives and how they can make us better, I think, as human beings. And it's a beautiful story. There is a sales scene, actually, in Black Beauty, that gave me not the idea to write the sales scene where, where Noble Warrior is discovered, but actually the confidence to write it, because I know those scenes can work. Mm -hmm. And a racing sale is very different from, from the market that Black Beauty is sold at. So, yeah, it was very influential in my childhood, but also inf it's influenced my writing. And how many times do you think you've read it? Oh, I probably have only read it five or six times. I read it again just before I wrote My Animals, actually, Another Family. So the last time I would have read it would have been four years ago. Claire, with The Racehorse Who Wouldn't Gallop, you're joining a long tradition of authors who've written children's stories about horses. Why do you think these sorts of stories are so popular with younger readers? I think particularly for girls, actually. I think there is a, there is a sense of having a relationship with another living being mm -hmm. who is bigger and stronger and more powerful than you are, but you can work together and you can... That feeling of flying as well, I think little girls love the escapism of the, even just the idea of riding, of getting on a pony and 
disappearing, you, you know, and going for hours and talking to that pony. And I used to talk to my ponies all the time, particularly Frank, who was my favourite. Um, I told him all sorts of things and really genuinely thought he was listening to me and somehow answering back. <laughs> And even when he trod on my foot and broke my toe, you know, I still thought that was an act of love. He, he didn't mean to do that. <laughs> Barge me out the way or try and, you know, find polos in my pocket and bite me by mistake. I, I do think there's a bond and you feel it growing. And I think girls and boys, they like that sense of responsibility for an animal. And I think they like the feeling of warmth and the ability to touch and hold something or hug something. And, and also, obviously, a pony is big. You can put your arms right round it and you can feel that warmth. Um, and it's not giving you instructions. And it's not, no, and it's not judging you either. Mm. And I think there's a lot of the attraction is in that. And there's that feeling of it's yours. You've got this relationship. There is a riding club in Brixton. It's called the Ebony Horse Club, mm -hmm. right next to an estate that is sort of notoriously dangerous and difficult. And the kids there, they come from backgrounds where you would not normally get contact with horses and ponies. Mm -hmm. And the kids come there to escape. And they come there to develop a sense of confidence. And they're scared. And they're scared of horses when they first come through the gate. Mm -hmm. But they learn to trust them. And that yard is spotless. I've never been in the yard so clean because the kids are always brushing and sweeping and grooming and cleaning tack. And that, that sense of that discipline is really important as well. And then they get to ride the ponies once or twice a week and they rotate and they, and they all have their favourites. If they can't ride their favourite pony, they have to develop a relationship with another one. And it's just brilliant. They have a lot of kids as well who might have behavioural difficulties and find speaking to adults really difficult. But they'll talk to the ponies. Claire, so you it's are really, it's unofficial really sports minister. <laughs> Do you have further plans to continue Charlie's adventures? Yeah, I think Charlie needs to have more adventures. And I think because she's a problem solver and she finds the strengths in other people, even if they can't see them, I think she's perfectly placed to help advise on and coach, whether it be a very high-level football team, for example, who are, have lost the ability to win matches, or whether it be an athlete who has lost his or her confidence and needs to get it back to get to Tokyo, for example. I think Charlie could very strongly play a role in, in that part. So I think she's going to, you know, she's definitely on a road that will lead her to, she'll become the person that people come to. You know, can you solve our banking crisis even? <laughs> Charlie comes in and sorts it all out. So, yeah. <laughs> Claire, you've been an absolutely wonderful guest and thank you very much and I wish you enormous best-selling sales with your next balding and this one in particular. Thank you. From the legendary author Beatrix Potter, Kitty in Boots tells the story of a serious and very well-behaved black cat who leads a daring double life. This entertaining tale is filled with mistaken identities and devious villains. And there's even an appearance from Peter Rabbit, all brought to life by Academy Award winner Dame Helen Mirren. Once upon a time, there was a serious, well-behaved young black cat. It belonged to a kind old lady who assured me that no other cat could compare with Kitty. She lived in constant fear that Kitty might be stolen. I hear there is a shocking fashion for black catskin muffs. Wherever has Kitty gone to? Kitty! Kitty! She called it Kitty, but Kitty called herself Miss Catherine St Quintin. Kitty in Boots and Other Stories is available now on iTunes and Audible. <laughs>